0: A number of years ago, uh, I was in a car with my brother on the Easter long weekend. Uh, He is not a Christian, I am a Christian, and so he did the polite thing and asked me how church was on Easter Sunday. Um, You've probably been in that situation before, so I wonder how you would answer that question. What was church like for you? I mean, would you talk about the impressiveness of the band up front? Would you talk about how amazing it was that so many people from the community was there? Um, Would you talk about the kid's spot being, you know, it had both stuff for kids and stuff for adults. It was a really good kid's spot. Uh, Or would you talk about the impressiveness of the visiting preacher? I decided to give him a short wrap-up of the Bible talk. I said it was really good to be reminded that we, even though are unworthy to stand before God, God, in his love and grace, sends his son Jesus to die for us. And three days later, he rose again, proving that he defeated sin and death and gives us assurance of new life. It's the beauty of the gospel. So I shared this with him, and you know what he said? Absolutely nothing (laughs) for about five minutes. So there was stone dead silence for five minutes, and then he turns to me and says, Gee, that really killed the conversation. Um, I don't know if you have had that experience before. Maybe you think it's a bit naive for me to expect my brother to turn to me and say, well, Chris, what must I do to be saved? Um, but it did raise this question in me. I mean, why isn't the gospel more impressive? Why aren't I more persuasive? I take it this is a question you have asked yourself, so whether it's with your work colleagues or your family, you know, when you get up the courage to share your faith and you tell them about Jesus, and this great discussion about your faith slowly descends into arguing about who knows more about Richard Dawkins, um, and then you kind of end in a huff and you think, man, it, if the gospel would just be more impressive, why isn't the gospel more impressive? Why aren't I more persuasive? Or maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and we're so glad that you've joined us. And this is something you're thinking through tonight. I mean, the people in this building seem like pretty ordinary people. Don't look. Um, this guy up the front, this hipster from Sydney, he's not that impressive. And the Christian message, this guy Jesus, he doesn't seem too impressive Why can't the gospel be more impressive? It's a question that comes from our Bible reading. Did you notice that? Have a look at verse 18 again. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And again in verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greek look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The message of the cross is foolishness. It's a stumbling block. But why isn't it more impressive? It's a problem that we face today, and it's a problem that the Christians in Corinth were facing in the first century as well. You see, the city of Corinth was a city that prided itself on its spirituality, its sexuality, and in particular this week, its wisdom. The celebrities of the day were these travelling preachers that would roll into town, and like UFC fighters, well, they're philosophers, so they're kind of not like UFC fighters, but, you know, they would battle one another, they would debate one another, and their power and impressiveness were seen in their human wisdom, their rhetoric, and their ability to persuade people. And so this... Cultural assumption was brought into the people, as into church, um, as people went to church. And so people thought that the power of um, the gospel wasn't in God, but it was in these fancy preachers and in their rhetoric and in their human wisdom. And so Paul writes to correct these problems. Big idea tonight, the gospel is unimpressive so that we may see the power of God. God. Now, as a Christian, saying the gospel is unimpressive sounds strange. So tonight, I want to give you three reasons why the gospel is unimpressive. The first one, to expose the foolishness of the world. Have a look at verse 18 again. Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. If we were to keep reading to chapter 15, we would see that this message is that Christ died for this should come up. Thanks. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the 3rd day according to the scriptures. This is the message that Paul preached when he was first in Corinth, but by Corinthian standard it's not a popular message. This message is a message of humility. It's a message of suffering. It's a message of sacrifice and a horrific death. It is a shameful message in the first century. We see this in a piece of graffiti called the Alexamenos Graffito, a second century carving that a young man carved into a wall. Um, so about 50 to 100 years after this letter was written by Paul. It's a picture of a um, crucified donkey-headed figure. The inscription reads... Alexamenos worships his God. The message of the cross is foolishness. But the shocking thing is, is that God designed it this way. And Paul shows us this by quoting Isaiah chapter 29. That's in verse 19. He says, It is written. Uh, You see, 800 years before Jesus was. On earth, the prophet Isaiah comes into town and he says, Let me tell you about God's salvation project. Let me tell you about how some will perish and then some will be saved. God will destroy the wisdom of the wise, he will frustrate the intelligence of people. That is, he will refuse to reveal himself to people through their own human wisdom, their own human intelligence, or human discovery. And so, verse 20. This is how God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. This means that salvation is not based on your intelligence or your wisdom or your ability to learn or discover mysteries. I mean, we have a bunch of teenagers here tonight. Imagine if your position in heaven was based on getting all band sixes in the HSC. That would be terrible. Now, truth be told, there's probably one or two of you that would be like, right, Got this. But for most of you, that would be terrifying. And let's be honest, it should be for all of you. Um, the good news of Jesus is that inte- your intelligence doesn't guarantee you a spot in heaven. That is, heaven is open to all people, regardless of intelligence. What's it based on? Have a look at verse 21. For since the wisdom of God, so sorry, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, here you go. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. God's plan is first to refuse to be discovered by human wisdom. And then the irony is that he will be revealed, he will be found, he'll be known through the preaching of the message that is foolishness to the world. That's how people are saved. Now does that mean that God is anti-learning, anti-intellectual and anti-science. Well, no, God is not anti-intellectual. God is not anti-science. God is not anti-learning. But God refuses to be revealed by human discovery or caught in the human intellect. And the problem is that we still hold worldly wisdom and human intellect to such a high regard. We still put a lot of stock in the wisdom of the world I guess one of the big questions from this passage is why? Why do we still put stock in human wisdom? So that's the question that I have for you. So what you're going to do now is turn to the person next to you, ask them, why do people put so much stock in the wisdom of the world? And I'm going to give you a minute to discuss it. Okay, please keep those conversations going after church. I won't take answers, but I wonder what you said. Why do we hold human wisdom in such high regard? Uh, Maybe it's because of the advances of medical science and what that has brought to our um, our life, our, our quality of life. Maybe it's because we idolise experts, you know? We always like to hear from the specialist and the expert on certain things. Maybe it's simply because they are the loudest. Whoever is the loudest in the room, they will be heard the most. But behind all those things uh, is an issue, is a problem. That is, an over-inflated view of our own intellect, an over-inflated view of our own wisdom as humans, and our intellect. Uh, Take the late scientist Stephen Hawking, for example. He wrote a book called A Brief History of Time, and he writes this. He says, then we shall all, philosophers, scientists, and just ordinary people, guess that's like you and me, uh, be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is that we and the universe exist. If we find the answer to that, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason For then we would know the mind of God. Friends, can you see the foolishness in this? You can't discover the mind of God. I mean, can I discover your mind? Can I tell you what you're thinking right now? No. I mean, I could make some observations by the way you live. I could chat to you and make some assumptions. But you need to tell me what you're thinking. To know your mind, you need to reveal that to me. We might make observations or assumptions about God from his creation, but it is pure arrogance to think that we might be able to discover the mind of God. It's arrogance that comes from a sinful heart. Our sinful heart deludes us into thinking that we have the intellect and wisdom to match God, or worse, that God must jump through our hoops before we believe in him. We see it in verse 22. Have a look at 22. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. Now, Jews and Greeks have different categories and different questions, different hoops for which people must jump through. But behind it all is a sinful heart that says, I will only agree to God on my terms. Now, as finite creatures, we will never fully understand an infinite God. We can't expect God to jump through our hoops and to live up to our own standards because if we create a standard that God must live up to, haven't we just created God in our own image? Aren't we acting as God at that point? The only way for us to know the sovereign creator God who rules all things is for him to reveal himself to us. Think of a giant stage curtain, the one behind me. We need God to pull back the curtain and reveal himself to us. And the beauty is that in the gospel, he has done that. Have a look at verse 24. But to those whom God has called Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. While God frustrates the wisdom of the wise, he has not left us alone in the dark. God has revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus. So if you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. And in his death on the cross, he pays for our sin. In this seemingly foolish death, we can be saved by God. So while this message, this gospel is unimpressive and seems weak, It is the most powerful message of all. It takes people from death to life, from darkness to light. As unworthy rebels, it takes them and makes them children of God. The message of cross is um, impressive so that we would see the power of God at work. So I guess the difference between perishing and saved is actually not a lack of information. It's not a lack of intelligence. It's not God not meeting our standard. The difference between those who are perishing and those who are saved is those who are willing to humble themselves before God and to trust in his son Jesus. Which brings us to our second point. point, second reason why the gospel is unimpressive. It humbles the wise. Have a look at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Paul moves from the world to the Corinthians. As the church that he planted, he intimately knows the people who are there and he knows what their lives are like. He knows what they were like before they met Jesus and now what they're like after they've met Jesus. He knows that they weren't impressive, that they didn't have political influence, that they weren't nobility, yet God saved them. And we see a similar thing in Jesus' ministry. So in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. And in Mark, sorry, Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. This is how God's kingdom works. Now, when I think about OEC, I think, well, hang on. We actually do have some people who are kind of wise. I mean, we do have doctors, we have nurses. We have lecturers, we have heads of department. I mean, have you met Kevin? He's a pretty impressive guy. He's a big deal. Um, And we also have people who are strong. Like, Jeff doesn't look intimidating, right? He does Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He has a medal and everything. I would not want to take Jeff on in a fight, even though he's half my height. But seriously, he's strong. He's a strong guy. But that's not the reason why God has chosen these people, or us, to be saved, The reason why God has chosen them is because of his grace. In God's kingdom, it is those who are lowly in this world who are raised up above the noble um, through salvation. And therefore, it's this gospel that humbles the proud and it brings the proud down. It brings the arrogant down because they have not received salvation. This is the economy of God's kingdom. So that verse 29, no one may boast before the Lord. It's a gift, our salvation. It's a gift from God. You see, the gospel seems impressive, but it also shows us the power of God. Did you hear about the story about the boy who tried to catch God in a cup? Uh, There was once a little boy who asked his mum, where is God? And his mum said, God is everywhere. So he said, okay, is God around this cup? She said, yes. Is God in this cup? She said, yes. And he said, look, mum, I've caught God. Now, it is pure arrogance to say that we might catch God, that we might discover God. But the gospel humbles us. You see, we are unable to catch God. It is God who calls us and summons us to himself. And he does that through the gospel. The gospel humbles us so that we would live as fools for God. Um, If you've got your Bibles there, um, and I'd encourage you to bring uh, your Bible every week because in 1 Corinthians we'll do a bit of flicking. Um, Go to chapter 3. So probably flick over one page. Go to chapter 3, uh, verse 18. Paul says this, Let no one deceive himself if anyone thinks that he is wise in this age. Let him become a fool so that he may become wise. You see, like everyone, the Corinthians didn't want to be thought of as foolish. And specifically, they didn't want to be thought of as fools for being Christian. They wanted to be thought as reasonable people, sensible people, you know, cup of tea in bed by 9.30 kind of people. Um, But Paul's point is this, Corinthians Unless you are prepared to be thought of as fools in this world, then you cannot be saved. And it's the same in us. If the world we live in thinks the message of the gospel is foolishness, then it will think you're a fool for living by it. In fact, that's not just the gospel. That's the whole Bible. In the 21st century, the world views the Bible as irrelevant and unimportant. It's, they say it's trying to solve um, 21st century problems with ancient solutions. So it think, says things like, "People of the world will say that the Bible, its view of men and women, are from the dark ages. Its sexual ethic is outdated. Its view of God is too pie in the sky." But God's wisdom—and this is really important—God's wisdom is not just for Christians. It shows all people how they may live and how they may flourish in the world that God has created. You see, there's actually not two wisdoms in this world. It's a very postmodern thing to say. God's not postmodern. Um, there is not two wisdom in this world. There is one wisdom, that is God's wisdom, and he calls all people to live under that wisdom to stick to the bible and the foolishness of the gospel it takes conviction doesn't it it takes conviction to hold these things and it takes courage courage to look foolish in the world and so often our conviction is strong we have god's word we know what we believe we just don't want our work colleagues to know we just don't want our family all our friends to think that we're foolish So often it's not the conviction that's the hard thing, it's the courage to live as fools in this world. But friends, don't let the world fool you into thinking that you need to live by the wisdom of the world. Verse 25, the foolishness of God in this world is wiser than man. Uh, Paul's doing this funny paradoxical thing. He's talking about foolishness and wisdom. He's talking about the strength of God and the weakness of God. But ultimately, he's talking about wisdom and worth. What is the wisdom of greatest worth? It is God's wisdom because God is the sovereign creator who rules all things and his wisdom is the truth by which we must live by and the truth which we must give an account to. Now, if we go back to the passage, third reason why isn't the gospel more impressive, so that we may see the power of God. It's the big idea tonight. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul recalls his first visit to Corinth. We read about that last week in Acts chapter 18, and how he preached the gospel. And he had this resolve, that is, a conscious decision to not use eloquence or human wisdom as he preached. Preach the gospel to him, which is a really weird thing for Paul to say because he's actually a really eloquent preacher and he has a lot of wisdom. Like tonight, if you were to go home and read Acts chapter seventeen, you'd read the sermon to the statue of the unknown god. That is a very wise sermon. He knows a lot about philosophy, about stoicism, empiricism, um, sorry, Epicureanism. Um, He's a very wise and eloquent preacher. But when he rolls into Corinth, he sets that aside. Paul has great knowledge and knows impressive philosophy, but as a matter of deliberate intention, he decides not to use it. And he preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, yes, he would have preached other things. I mean, the guy was there for 18 months, right? Uh, But at the centre of all that he preached was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Verse 4. My message and my preaching was not with wise or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul sets aside his ability so that their faith would not rest on him and human wisdom, but on the truth of the gospel. He sets aside his power so that the preaching of the gospel would be a demonstration of God's power. And most importantly, he sets aside his impressiveness so their own conviction would not be because of how good he is, but how powerful God is. Friends, if the gospel is so so unimpressive, can I ask you tonight, why do you believe? If the gospel exposes the foolishness of the world and humbles the wise, then why do you believe? It's because of the power of God. As the gospel is preached, God's spirit is at work. God's spirit has convicted you of the truth of his gospel. God's spirit has convicted you of your need to repent of your sin and to trust in his son. Why is the gospel unimpressive? Ultimately, because it shows us the power of God. I mean, um, as we think through application... What would it look like for us to do this at church? Uh, 1 Corinthians is written to a church. It's not our church, so we're not the first audience of this letter. But as we read it today, um, like 2,000 years later, how do we kind of put this into action in our church? I think two things to think about. First, we must not resort to eloquence or human wisdom. But the truth of God's word, the Bible. Every time God's word is preached, God's power, his spirit is at work. And you can't separate God's word from God's spirit. Whenever God's word is preached, God's spirit is at work. And I guess this raises the question, does this, does this mean we don't need to prepare Bible talks? You know, um, there is a some, there's a saying in some circles that if you get up unprepared, And you simply say what's on your heart. You're not relying on your own wisdom. You're relying on the spirit of God. And that's how we should have sermons. That's how we should have Bible studies, kids talks and youth group talks. And I want to politely ask the question, is that actually true? Is preparing less spiritual? I mean, take our sermons on a Sunday, for example. Uh, you expect, as people in the congregation, that people who get up to preach have had some sort of study. Yeah? When people ask me how long a sermon took to prever- prepare, I always tell them four years. Yeah? I mean, I hope this one's good. But, um, like, it takes four years of study. And it takes preparation during the week. We expect that people who get up on a Sunday to preach at church that they have prepared the passage We expect them to pray, to pray that God would be at work and then to preach God's truth faithfully. The assurance is that they don't need to rest on their own impressiveness, their own understanding, but through this study and preparation, they rely on God and God's wisdom and his understanding of this passage. And as a God transforms their life as they study this passage, they then share that with people. And how God might transform our lives. So I don't think it is any less spiritual to prepare, but we do pray that God would be at work when we preach. I think that's the same for kids' church, for youth group and growth group leading. The other the second thing is um, a bit more personal. The question of will you rely on God's power to save? Will you rely on God's power to save? The danger is to think that we need to be more convincing or the gospel needs to be more impressive. Remember my um, my conversation with my brother in the car? Five minutes of deathly silence. That really killed the conversation, Chris. Uh, it was awful. Well, okay, it wasn't that bad. It was uncomfortable. Um, but it did make me think, why isn't the gospel more impressive? At that moment, if you're like me, you're tempted to think, I need to introduce this person to someone who is better at preaching than me, who's better at sharing the gospel than me, someone who is more impressive like like the kind of people that when you say one word of their name, you know exactly who I'm talking about. I'll give you an example. This person really needs to talk to Keller. This person needs to talk to Dixon. This needs, person needs to talk to A. Jensen maybe two of them, Um, or depending on your generation, this person needs to talk to Billy. The thing is, is that if God wanted our friends and our family to hear the gospel from these great speakers and preachers, he would put them in their life. But God hasn't done that. Friends, God has put you in their life. So you don't need to be the next Tim Keller or John Dixon or Philip Jensen. What you need to do is to rely on the power of God to be at work, to pray, God, give me the courage as I share the gospel with the people I love. Uh, Rely on God's spirit. So, so, So to speak simply and clearly and the truth and then pray that God's spirit would be at work because that's what happened in your life and that's what God wants to do in the lives of your friends and family. That's not an easy thing to do, um, but let's... uh, Actually, no, I'll finish with Callista, okay? Um, Callista is a friend of mine from the Hawkesbury, and she's a very unimpressive girl. Uh, She works at a hardware store. Um, She's kind of three-quarters of my size. Uh, And she does this very foolish thing. She shares the gospel with people that she works with in the hardware store and tradies who come in. She says, Chris, I feel so inadequate. I feel so intimidated. I mean, if I could only get these people to speak to other people, then they might become Christian. But then she prays for the courage to speak. She prays that God would give her words to say. And she simply and clearly presents the gospel to people that God puts in her path. And so last year by the grace of God, uh, an unimpressive 19-year-old led a a 50-year-old tradie to the Lord. It's incredible, but not because of her own impressiveness, not because of her wise words or her human wisdom, but because when she was faithful, clear and concise with the gospel, God's spirit was at work in that person's life, and they believed And so the big question is, will you rely on the power of God to save people in your life? That's not an easy thing to do, but let's pray that God would help us to do that. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection and the hope of sharing in your glory. We thank you that this message of the gospel is a message that saves and it is your power So help us to not think that we need to be more impressive. Help us to not think that we might need to change it. Help us to rely on you and your strength. And Lord, as we share the gospel with the people that you put in our path, we pray that your spirit would mightily be at work, that you would take people from death to life because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because of what he has done on the cross, so that no one may boast except boasting in the Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.